Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health dash equity. From KVPR, you're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Today on our show, 50 years after the passage of Title IX, we ask how successful the law has been in keeping people safe from sexual harassment and assault on campus. And later, the Fresno Philharmonic returns to the Saroyan Theater this weekend for the world premiere of a new work by a Fresno State music professor. But first... Between 2014 and 2019, records reveal that more than 40% of people seriously injured or killed by Bakersfield police were having some sort of mental health crisis or substance-related disorder. That's according to a new analysis done by KVPR and the California Reporting Project. KVPR's Sarith Hawk reports. Kelly James was driving all over Bakersfield, scanning the streets for any sign of her younger brother, Michael Dozer. She hadn't seen him in days and had good reason to be concerned. It's just that sometimes my brother have breakdowns. You know, I remember, I remember him looking up at me one day and was crying his heart out. And he was asking me, what is wrong with me? What, what's going on? At 26 years old, Dozer suffered from schizophrenia. He heard voices and had grown paranoid. Frantic, searching for hours just that day, James drove past a gas station on East Brundage Lane in Bakersfield. It was blocked off with police tape. I passed by the place and I just seen it, that crime scene, and I just felt it in the pit of my stomach. And it was like the worst feeling in the world. Her gut feeling was right. Her little brother lay bleeding in the parking lot. A Bakersfield police officer had shot him in the stomach. God, just a few more minutes. If I could have just been at the life where got there just maybe 30 minutes sooner, I could have stopped it, you know. Police records show that multiple 911 calls came in from the gas station. One reported a guy, quote, going all crazy. Another said a man was trying to set the gas station on fire. A third caller described a man who was mentally upset and scaring customers. Dozer had splashed gas on the ground, video showed. Then he started a fire, which reached him too. Dispatch called this an unknown situation. Within minutes, Officer Aaron Stringer arrived on the scene. He called for backup and speculated that Dozer was on drugs. Stringer claims Dozer paced around saying, let's do this. Let's do this. Then, a witness says Dozer approached fast with a bike lock over his head. Stringer shot. A single bullet hit Dozer in the abdomen. Paramedics had to cut his smoldering pants from his body. Dozer was pronounced dead at the emergency room. And I just struggled with that for so long. I just struggled with it. We have given policing responsibility for dealing with mental health issues in the United States, essentially by default. Former police officer Seth Stoughton is now a law professor at the University of South Carolina who studies how police use force. He says it is important for officers to do all they can to assess whether or not someone is experiencing a mental health crisis. Because the approach that officers take is different, or at least is supposed to be different. Um, since the 1980s, policing has developed a set of tactics and procedures specifically for dealing with individuals in crisis. The California Reporting Project analyzed records released by the Bakersfield Police Department related to the use of force over a six-year period. Our review found mental health was a factor in 41 percent of these cases. Here's Lisa Pickoff-White, the project's lead data journalist. We counted people described as crazy or strange by witnesses or callers to 911. 
people with a confirmed diagnosis like schizophrenia, people who displayed signs of disability or erratic behavior on scene, according to police reports, and people who demanded police harm them. Out of 18 people who died, 11 had a mental health condition like Michael Dozer, or were intoxicated, or both. That kind of tracks what we know about police uses of force, which is that they are, uh, that unfortunately officers are disproportionately likely to use force against individuals with mental health conditions. The Public Policy Institute of California confirms this. Their research found that 40% of people treated for non-fatal gunshot wounds from a police encounter were diagnosed with a mental health condition, a substance-related disorder, or both. The Bakersfield Police Department didn't sit down for an interview about our findings. In a written comment, a spokesman told us our interpretation of the data appears, quote, inaccurate. The department pointed out that force is used in less than 1% of all encounters with members of the public. And the spokesman said the biggest error is, quote, the idea that anything about the use of force can be judged posthumously to include some kind of mental health exemption for deadly force. Here's Lisa Pickoff-White again. According to the department, Bakersfield reported to the state just one case during this period as mental health related. It is not the Dozer case. We also located two cases where the department labeled people as erratic in the same records. Eight years ago, Michael Dozer's mother filed a wrongful death lawsuit against the Bakersfield Police Department and Officer Aaron Stringer. Last fall, the city agreed to settle the lawsuit for a quarter of a million dollars. At the house where Dozer grew up, his sister, Kelly James, spreads out a poster-sized collage of family pictures on the dining room table. This is the last picture my sister caught of him before he passed away. Their grandma, Mary Crawford, points out another photo. Yeah, and here he is right here when we had like a family reunion. That was for grandma's birthday party. Crawford says more than seven years after his death, she still thinks of him daily. We go to the cemetery and put flowers on the grave, you know. So, um, you know, it's just a void in your heart. For KVPR News, I'm Sarith Hawk. Next week, how a settlement with the state has forced the Bakersfield Police Department to improve procedures, including when a person is in a mental health crisis. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A USA Today investigation published this week details concerns that Fresno State's Title IX office lacked the staff and resources to adequately investigate sexual harassment and assault claims during Joseph Castro's presidency. To get a better sense of how Title IX works on university campuses, I spoke with Chelsea Mutual, a senior staff attorney with the California Women's Law Center. I suspect that when most people hear Title IX, they think of women's sports. But of course, it is a much, much, much bigger law. So I want to take a look at maybe the history of, of this law and how sexual harassment came to be considered illegal sexual discrimination. Sure. So, yeah, I think you're right that a lot of people, um, when they hear Title IX, they think of sports, they think of athletics, you know, which is correct, but um, they don't realize that it is much broader than that, as you said. Title IX was passed in 1972. It's a federal civil rights law that, as you mentioned, prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in education programs and activities. So that's all public and private schools uh, that receive any federal funds from kindergarten through universities. Uh, So this applies to most schools. And sex-based discrimination has, over the years, come to be understood uh, by courts and and enforcement agencies to include sexual harassment, sexual violence, uh, such as rape or sexual assault. And so schools under Title IX are required to take certain actions to respond to prevent sexual assault and sexual harassment so that students have equal access to education. So can you just explain the process at a school or a university when there is a sexual harassment claim made? How does it differ from, you know, another place of employment? So, yeah, I think the reason some people find it confusing is because 
Well, so there are a couple couple things here. People find it a little confusing when they when we talk about sexual violence because they think of criminal charges and they overlook the alternative to that, you know, to criminal proceedings that Title IX provides to students specifically uh, on campus. And Title IX and school disciplinary proceedings for sex-based assault or harassment are a way to address sexual violence on campus as a civil rights issue, similar to the civil rights protections in the workplace under Title VII. So those laws have similar both legal and conceptual roots rooted in in the civil rights movement, Uh, but the actual process, as you mentioned, is is different. So, and it it depends on the school. There are certain requirements that all schools have to comply with under Title IX, but the specific process looks different at various schools, looks different at a high school than, than a university or a college. So I can tell you sort of broadly what happens and or what what should happen when a student makes a complaint of sexual harassment or sexual assault on campus whether the perpetrator is a professor or an employer of the school or it's another student so what that's supposed to look like once the student reports that is that the title line officer should be involved um, the title line coordinator or officer there has to be one at every school that's a requirement and student will meet with the Title IX coordinator and talk about the investigative process, the options the student has, whether that's to file a formal Title IX complaint regarding the sexual assault or harassment, um, or to explore sort of alternative informal options such as a mediation. And at that, and the student should be informed at that meeting, you know, what all of these tools and options that are available to them, um, including sort of interim supportive measures, like whether that's a need to extend, you know, deadlines relating to their classes or their exams, issues relating to their housing, if they feel unsafe, uh, counseling, things like that. So if a student decides to move forward with a Title IX complaint, there'll be an investigation. And so let me step back and say that the overall process, it varies in terms of how long it takes to complete the investigation and there's no set deadline under Title IX. So generally the school will initiate the investigation if the student wants to wants to proceed in that manner and the student will be interviewed. The perpetrator, the, the person being accused of the sexual assault or harassment will also be interviewed um, and the student can provide any evidence they might have, any texts or pictures or anything else related to the incident, and then also witnesses that they might want to um, be interviewed on their behalf. After that process, usually what happens is the investigator is supposed to provide sort of a summary of the statements from the person being accused, from the other witnesses, and then there will be a hearing at at the conclusion of the investigation process-ish. Um, although that actually depends on state law too. It, in California, there's some nuance there. But that's where the student will testify that the, the uh, person being accused of the assault or harassment will also testify, as will any witnesses that either of them have identified. And then after that point, there will be a decision issued essentially on whether the person who we call referred to as the respondent, usually who's being accused has, um, whether they, you know, they make a finding as to whether that person did what they were accused of and basically finding whether they're responsible or not for the sexual assault or harassment. And when that finding is issued, if there's a finding of responsibility, then there will be some sort of consequences for that, whether that's being expelled, whether they, you know, there are any number of things um, that the school could implement. And then there's the opportunity to potentially for an appeal. Okay. So you said that schools are mandated to have a Title IX coordinator. Yes. But schools vary in size. Um, mm-hmm. And the demands on a Title IX office w- would vary accordingly. So mm-hmm. what is the requirement to ensure that Title IX offices are adequately staffed to meet the needs of the campus? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's there's not a hard, you know, a bright line rule in terms of like the number of staff that should be available or, or who are hired to investigate. But certainly the school has to be meeting its obligation to provide a safe environment for students so they all have equal access to their educational opportunities. And in some schools, like you mentioned, they're if, if they're very small, 
that might be that might mean that the Title IX coordinator could also have another job title. Um, but if that other job there's a, a conflict with that position and their role as Title IX coordinator, that might mean that, that the school's not not compliant with Title IX. I'm sure you know it's something that lawyers say a lot, but there's a lot of gray area. Um, you know, it's not like it's that there's not a, a bright line rule. Um, it depends on the context. And a lot of times this comes up in lawsuit that a student will file against the school for their failure to properly handle Title IX investigations, whether on an individual basis or just as a whole that, you know, the school is not adequately investigating complaints of sexual assault, harassment. They're not doing enough to prevent it when they have knowledge of it happening. And the standard right now is whether the school under the law is whether the school responded to the sexual assault or harassment with deliberate indifference. So it's a little bit beyond negligence. So, you know, if a school has a huge student population and they have one person who is unable to, to properly address or process the, the complaints of sexual assault or harassment, yeah, that's inadequate under Title IX. And, and then what are the what are the implications? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is because this is tied to federal funding. What what mm-hmm. are the implications there? Yeah. So the um, you know, the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights is the um, entity responsible for enforcing uh, Title IX. So there might be complaints filed against the school with OCR and if OCR does an investigation into the college's you know policies and and finds that they're out of compliance, in theory, it could revoke the federal funding. Of course, that's also problematic for the students who are attending the school. Um, that hasn't happened. What, what usually happens is, you know, there'll be an investigation and a school and the OC, and OCR will come to, you know, some sort of resolution where the school agrees to take certain steps to improve their policy, improve their process. And there could be, um, you know, CR might do some continued monitoring to make sure that the school is taking those steps that they agreed to. Students could file a complaint specific to their assault or harassment. And so CR could order specific um, remedies for the school to take in response or in relation to that uh, individual student. That's on the funding side in terms of the government action that can be taken. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there are, you know, there are civil lawsuits that, that students file against the schools. And, and the implication there is obviously damages, but also right. reputational harm to the school. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. So before I let you go, you know, mm-hmm. this is the 50th anniversary of Title IX. The, this year marks the 50th anniversary. From where you sit, as it pertains to uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault in school settings, how effective has Title IX been in, in dealing with these cases? That's a good question. You know, I think we can recognize that Title IX has done a lot to help girls and women in, uh, in terms of their education and sex discrimination education, but that there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, you know, the 2020 rule that was finalized sort of sent us backwards in time a bit. And the Biden administration is currently reviewing that and going to propose a new rule um, that'll be published. We're expecting next month in April that should hopefully provide more safeguards for sexual assault and harassment survivors. So I think it's been a it's been a really critical tool for for students. But I think we also have to recognize that for a lot of women and girls, there's, you know, the system has failed. And I think especially relating to uh, LGBTQ plus people, people of color um, who are disproportionately harmed and, um, you know, there's, there's more work to be done. Well, I've been talking with Chelsea Mutual, senior staff attorney with the California Women's Law Center. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. This is Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. A little over a year ago, Fresno made headlines as one of the first California counties to offer the COVID vaccine to farm workers. That was partly the work of Dr. Trinidad Solis. At the time, she was a county public health physician, but in January of this year, she was promoted to deputy health officer of Fresno County. 
KVPR's Carrie Klein has this interview with Celise about her personal history and how it's shaped her priorities in her new role. One of those includes developing a rural mobile health project, and that really builds upon the work I've done uh, over the past year and a half here with the health department, with which is you know doing vaccinations and testings of, about COVID at the agricultural workplaces. But building on that and doing more than COVID and um, doing some basic health screenings and rural community events and so forth. So that's another thing that uh, right now I'm brainstorming with several of our uh, other colleagues here, but that's a topic and project that I want to continue working on. In addition, I I also serve as a medical consultant to programs uh, here within our maternal child and adolescent health division. So I'm also trained besides in public health. I'm also a family medicine doctor and board certified. So I really believe in the importance of keeping our, our families healthy. And one way of doing that is keeping our mothers healthy, making sure they have healthy pregnancies, making sure kids get routine physicals. And so we have several programs here at the health department that that help mothers do that. And so I encourage anyone who has questions or wants to know about our resources, uh, we have several of those uh, links on our website. So it sounds like you're you're trying to develop more outreach to some communities that may not necessarily have the best access to healthcare or health information. You need, you're talking about human families and mothers, but also rural communities. And you were involved in some of the early COVID vaccine efforts, uh, as you said, with agricultural communities and agricultural workplaces. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So I, I learned a lot from my um, experiences of, uh, for the first time, really developing vaccine clinics at the agricultural workplaces. So prior to COVID, we here at the health department, we didn't really have those bridges or relationships with our ag employers. But under this pandemic, I mean, as we all saw, it was an emergency and and we had to develop some creative solutions. And I think I learned so much about these collaborations with our ag employers, with our community-based organizations. And through those collaborative efforts, we were able to administer over 34,000 doses of the COVID vaccine to our agricultural employees. And many of them um, don't have a primary care doctor or don't have routine access to healthcare. So you know, we just wanted to uh, eliminate as many barriers to access to these vaccines as, as much as possible. And so as you mentioned, you're an MD, a family medicine physician. You also have a master's in public health. But even long before that, you know, I've heard you talk about your background growing up and how that has informed, you know, where you've gone professionally. So talk a little bit about your path and getting to where you are now. Sure. So I was born and raised in Salma, California, and it's a, a small rural town here in Fresno County. And I'm a first generation daughter to Mexican immigrant farm workers. Uh, my father, for example, worked over 40 years in the fields here in California. And myself as a child, I spent uh, some of my summers working alongside my parents and siblings in, in the fields here in Central California. And so, you know, from an early age, I learned the hard work it takes to uh, work out in the fields and, and appreciate um, what our farm workers do to help feed our community. Um, And so I I think just having those experiences early on really shaped uh, not only the importance of like being thankful for our farm workers and the essential work they do, but also uh, my parents instilled the importance of education early on. Like, you know, uh, they always said that they felt uh, they had immigrated, that they didn't have as many options in terms of education. So they really instilled the importance of education and working hard. And so myself, like growing up, I... Um, you know, I would also see my parents have difficulty accessing care, like health care. My parents were monolingual Spanish speakers, and it was difficult to find culturally and linguistically competent physicians. And I often would be translating for my parents during their doctor visits. So I think for those reasons, I was drawn towards medicine. And, um, you know, during my training as, as a family medicine doctor, I learned that like seeing patients out in, in the clinics that a lot of times the root of their problems was was beyond the clinic walls, like having access to healthy foods, having access to having a safe space to exercise. And so I would be giving these recommendations and I would see it would be hard to follow them. And it's not that my patients didn't want to, it's just they didn't have access. So I think my experiences, like not only growing up, but also in my clinical practice, I saw that I... I wanted to be more involved uh, in the solutions like beyond the clinic walls. Uh, Really, I'm talking about public health uh, to help our vulnerable communities. Yeah, I mean, those are some pretty significant 
barriers to to a healthy, prosperous life. I mean, you talk about, I mean, even language barrier, but also, you know, lack of access to health insurance and health care, you know, in some cases in some of these rural communities, um, you know, a lack of access to healthy food or space or time to exercise. I mean, so how do you hope to sort of break down some of those barriers? Right. So earlier last year, like, I think based off my experiences, I knew living, growing up in a rural space that transportation is pretty difficult, especially public transportation is very limited. So for example, when we were administering COVID vaccines, early on, I knew that, you know, working with our colleagues here, that we had to have community vaccination sites in rural areas, um, in schools and community centers, um, instead of just having them in the metropolitan regions. So I think advocating for that was really instrumental to help uh, ensure more equity in, in um, COVID testing and access to COVID testing. And also, as I mentioned, making them available at the agricultural workplaces, just again, making them more accessible. But yeah, so those are some of the some of the things I've done with COVID to to address um, the issues of access. And once COVID is, it may not be fully behind us, but you know, when our when our focus doesn't need to be on COVID so much, I mean, you talked a little bit about you know maternal health. What are what are going to be some of your other priorities moving forward? Right. So I, I agree with you. So COVID, um, we've been doing a lot of discussions about with the community that you know we're we're moving more towards endemic, where we're learning how to live with COVID. And even though it's endemic, I always inform people that that doesn't mean that COVID is any less dangerous and just, you know, another reminder for those who haven't been vaccinated yet to um, ask your doctor if you still have questions. But in terms of other things besides COVID, right now I am working with a team to develop, how can we deliver more services besides the vaccines, the COVID vaccines to our community? Um, by that, I mean screening for diabetes, screening for blood pressure. A lot of these diseases, you know, they don't have symptoms early on. And so from my experience as a clinician, I see that sometimes people are afraid to even visit their doctor because they don't want to uh, know they have a disease or they're afraid to know their numbers. And I really want to change that paradigm, and, you know, and, and encourage people to be aware of where they stand with their numbers, because usually we have a better prognosis when we can detect diseases early. So I think, you know, with my new position, I really want to advocate for, for individuals not only to seek health insurance and have a primary care doctor, but also to do health screenings like their annual physical. Now that the COVID numbers are improving, it's, it's a good opportunity to do so. So um, the way we're trying to do that is um, by, again, we're brainstorming on how we can do a rural mobile health project where we can identify individuals who don't have a primary care doctor and help them enroll. We have uh, several federally qualified health centers in rural areas, and perhaps individuals may not know about them. And so we want to make them aware of these resources and have possibly our community-based organizations help enroll them. So again, that's a project that I'm currently working on and hoping to develop over the next few months. And that will definitely be a collaboration likely with our community-based organizations and some medical providers. Um, but I also, um, I'm also developing an elective uh, for medical residents to uh, rotate here in the health department. And the reason I bring this up is uh, we do have a shortage of health professionals, not only doctors, nurses, specialists here uh, in, the, in the region. And, you know, I grew up here and after my training, I came back and I want to inspire other young physicians to also feel connected to their community and, and stay here after their training or come back if they left. Uh, because I really feel that's another way to improve access to health in our community by having more um, health care providers. Great. Well, Dr. Trinidad Solis, Fresno County Deputy Health Officer, thank you so much for the conversation. Great. Thank you. You're listening to Valley Edition. I'm Kathleen Schock. Valley native Donna Barba Iguera took home the Newbery Medal for her book, The Last Quintista. It's a dystopian sci-fi novel about a 12-year-old girl who keeps the memory of Earth alive after the planet is destroyed by a comet. I spoke to Iguera about the inspiration she drew from her childhood growing up in Taft and what it's like to win the nation's most coveted prize, for children's literature. You, of course, grew up in Taft. Tell us a little bit about your childhood and how those experiences have informed the stories you tell as an author. I did grow up in Taft, and I think that a lot of my childhood, you know, were surrounded by oil fields and 
agricultural fields. And um, sometimes there wasn't a lot to do when I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. And so we would explore, my friends and I. And oftentimes we just had really big and vivid imaginations. So oftentimes, you know, there was a, a pioneer cemetery in Taft Heights up behind where we lived. And my friends and I would go out to this cemetery. And I remember just looking at these, what I thought were ancient headstones and making up stories of the people who had lived there and why they were there. And I know now it was probably quite dangerous. I think the ground is unstable, but at the time we were exploring the oil fields. And so a big part was, yeah, my surrounding and what I grew up with, but also the people I grew up with, the, they're just people from Taft are just, you know, the best at heart. They just have the, the most amazing personalities on top of that, but just really good people. And so oftentimes bits and pieces of the people I know have made it into my stories as characters in a good way. I mean, maybe a few bad, but mostly good. Well, tell me a little bit about more about your family, because I understand that storytelling was a big part of your tradition. Yeah, you know, but my grandmother used to tell me stories. Oftentimes her her family was um, lived in San Luis Obispo and her family had been settlers when when um, it was Mexican territory long, long ago. And um, California was part of Mexico. And so a big part of my growing up was her telling stories of when her family had settled that area and had moved from Mexico, but also her childhood and what it meant to be a minority in central California and how her childhood was affected. And when she moved to the area near Taft and both my grandfathers worked in the oil fields. And so I think that you know, having my mother or my grandmother tell me stories, but in addition to her, my grandfathers would tell me stories about their daily life in the oil field and their adventures. My mother and father were both school teachers, um, but they were storytellers as well. I could always count on a bedtime story and it would, would either be something from their childhood. My mother was from Oklahoma and when her family had migrated to uh, Bakersfield, like a lot of families did from Oklahoma, the story of how that happened. Um, but a lot of them were make-believe. My dad had a big imagination as well. And so he was always telling my sister and I really fantastical stories, many of which I would go to school and repeat to my teachers and tell them they were true, which sometimes would get me in trouble and then in turn would get him in trouble at home with my mother. But oh boy, we that were, sounds dangerous. Yeah. It could be. Yeah. <laughs> but it was always in a, in a fun way. There were always stories being told. Um, you know, I remember vividly my grandmother either making chorizo or rolling tamales around the table and talking and telling stories with her sisters and just laughing and giggling. And that's, I would, I just sat and observed and watched that as a child and knew that someday, if anything, I wanted what they have. Well, you dedicated uh, your most recent book, The Last Quintista, to your father. Let's talk a little bit about the book itself. Maybe tell us about the protagonist, Petra, and how her relationships to memory and story are, are really about exploring what it means to be human. Yeah, I think when I was writing this story, which it happens oftentimes with writers, we don't realize until we're done writing the story that a lot of it is autobiographical and has to do with something that's going on with our own life or how we feel. And for me, when I was writing this story, because those stories are so precious to me and, and the theme of this novel or one of the questions were asked in the beginning, like this character is, if you're leaving earth for the last time and you have one thing that you can take with you, what would that one thing be? And for me, that is stories and books and the love of folklore and mythology. And that's what the character Petra wants to take with her. And so for myself, you know, when I was growing up, I, I was a good student and my parents 
as you know, having two daughters, I think they wanted to make sure that my sister and I could take care of ourselves. So they encouraged me to go into science. And I did, I, I became an eye doctor, but I stories and folklore have always pulled at my heart. And so I've always written maybe short stories and then eventually novels. And so it's just a part of who I am. So like Petra, it was something that I knew that if this was the question asked of me, it is what is most important to me and what I would want to take with me. Storytelling. I understand that you didn't start writing in a real serious way until you were in your 40s. Is that correct? That's correct. I, I, I guess I would, you know, a lot of times people want to put a definition on how serious writers. And I think oftentimes writers are not, we don't realize that we're serious about anything until suddenly there's a book that's published. And for me, I was writing more for myself. It was, it wasn't a hobby. It was something that fulfilled me and something that I could do in my spare time. I was surprised when I was published, but I think I've always considered myself a writer. Um, but as far as being serious about it, I don't think I've been serious until recently <laughs> because now there are deadlines looming and people are expecting work from me. So, but yes, I wasn't, I didn't write my first novel until I was well into my forties. So I guess that's a lesson for all of us that it's never too late. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. Cause you know, undoubtedly there's somebody listening to this. Who's, you know, I don't know, uh, an attorney who's always dreamed of being a painter or a sculptor, you know, mm-hmm. what words of wisdom would you have for somebody who is contemplating a midlife change of career or, or creative pursuit? You know, I hear that. I get that all the time. I hear those questions or people tell me I've always wanted to write, or I've always wanted to try this. And the only thing that I would tell them is do it, just try it. And for me, it was um, sure there are insecurities. I will always be a student. I will always go back and take more classes in, in literature and writing because I'm still learning. I have a lot to learn but that's not even it for me. I want to go back and study astronomy. There's so many things I want to do. And I think many of us think that in life, we all we are is our day-to-day job. And that's not it. There has to be something more that's fulfilling to us and what makes us happy. And I wish that I could just look each person in the eye who is considering that and just encourage them and tell them, go forth with your dreams because you never know what happens. A little girl who never would have considered even having a book published just won the Newbery Medal. So anything is possible. Okay. So let's talk about that award. It is such a huge deal. How did you find out that you had won? Well, that's an interesting story. There's, there are a lot of smoke and mirrors that go into it because they don't want the, um, the winners to know until just before. So in the past, I had heard that people got the call in the middle of the night, the the night before the ceremony. And I never dreamed this wasn't even on my radar. My book has, you know, sci-fi and dystopian elements. And really the last science fiction novel to win the Newbery was A Wrinkle in Time. And that was, you know, 50 years ago. So what happened was my publisher, the uh, marketing department said, hey, Barnes and Noble wants to have a meeting with you this weekend. They have two meetings, Saturday and Sunday, and it was a Zoom meeting. So, of course, you know, in the day of Zoom, a call was not in the talks. So I log on to this Zoom meeting, which I presume is with Barnes and Noble. And there were way too many faces for this to be a Barnes and Noble meeting about a paperback version of my book, Lupe Wong Won't Dance. So I log on and immediately they told me they were from the Puerto Bel Pre committee and Puerto Bel Pre is a different American Library Association award. And it's for um, a work of a Latino uh, character or author. And so for me, of course, that made me extremely emotional. But again, I got off this call and was talking to the PR department and completely blown away and said, oh, so is tomorrow the real meeting with Barnes and Noble? And they said, yes. And so I logged on the next day, expecting it to be Barnes and Noble. And the first words that came out of a gentleman's mouth 
again, way too many faces for it to be Barnes and Noble was, hi, Donna, um, I am the chairman of the Newberry Medal Committee. And of course, I completely burst into tears, completely not expected. And I saw my editor there and some other friends from the publishing house. And it was just a really emotional moment. I can't even describe the feelings because there was, you know, shock and giddiness and everybody was laughing and crying and sharing with those emotions with me, people I didn't even know. So the call was a Zoom call, but it was extremely surreal and unexpected. So how has life changed since then? And and what does the future hold? Because I understand you're still working as an optometrist. Is that right? I am. I am still seeing patients two to three days a week. I'm, I love the balance. I hope I can continue to do that. I love my patients. They have become like family members over the last 27 years. And so if I can keep going, I will. And I get to work both sides of my brain. I just, I love it. Um, it's been different. The days that I'm not at my day job, it recently, it's been a lot of interviews, but in between they're still writing and working that side of my brain that I love. So oftentimes I have to get up early in the morning and sit to do my writing. And for me, that is my escape. That is my place to go and find other worlds and other places. And it's just my first love. And so, um, yeah, for now I'm working on a new project. Um, again, another, yet another deadline, but in a good way, it's been a lot of chaos, but really happy chaos. I'm sure I'm among many that is very excited to see what that next project is. Um, We're just huge fans of your work here in the Central Valley. And thank you so much for fitting us into your busy schedule. Thank you so much, Kathleen. It was a pleasure. And finally, the Fresno Philharmonic returns to the big stage at the Sororian Theater this weekend for the world premiere of a new work by a Fresno State music professor. KVPR's David Aus spoke with director Ray Hatoda and composer Kenneth Froelich. Ray Hatoda, great to see you today and great to be with you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, David. It's great to be back in Saroyan. Absolutely. Uh, this is a yeah. really great. What's it? So back in Saroyan with uh, Bigger Hall, full symphony orchestra, and bigger That's works right. now, right? This will be our first official Masterworks concert back in the hall in over two and a half years. So we're really so looking forward to seeing everybody in the audience and really uh, are excited about this program. And you have a very, very festive and exciting number to start this concert too, from a living composer. So tell us about the composer and tell us about the piece. The piece is called Mariachlin. And it is by Juan Pablo Contreras, who is a Mexican composer from Los Angeles, so California composer. And uh, his piece evokes a mariachi band. So it's very celebratory, but quite complex. He actually teaches on the faculty, uh, composition faculty at USC. And he's only 35 years old. I mean, he's just a remarkable talent. And he will be here for our Saturday evening concert. So everyone will get to meet him on stage. And I'm just really excited about this piece. There's so many elements of celebration in this piece, which includes the orchestra singing, the violinist doing a fantastic uh, mariachi solo. You will hear a police whistle breaking up the band and and the rowdiness. I mean, this is just evokes so many elements of the Western classical tradition, but put to this wonderful Latino cultural heritage. So I just love it. Oh, that's wonderful. And what a great musical expression to share with the Valley, especially. One thing I've read about his work is that critics have described him as both fun and serious at the same time. And this work really seems to capture that. Exactly. It's very rhythmic. So it's challenging for the orchestra in in so many different meter changes that happen in the score, but it comes off as being ebullient and dance-like, you know, so it's really exciting.
for the second piece on this concert, you're featuring a world premiere of new work from a Fresno-based composer. That's right. Dr. Kenneth Froelich is here with us. And uh, the piece is a clarinet concerto. And I think, Ken, you can really speak more to why you wrote it and what it's about. When I first decided I wanted to write this particular piece, I knew immediately that I wanted to work with clarinetist Jorge Montilla Moreno. He is a clarinetist that I knew from Indiana University back when we were graduate students. And uh, I had a chance to work with him when I was doing my doctorate on a composition called Blue Fire. And so we've known each other for quite some time. I reached out to Jorge to ask if he was interested in having me write a clarinet concerto for him. And he immediately responded and said, absolutely. I then reached out to the Fresno Philharmonic, pitched the idea, and that's where this all came about from. Well, we're really excited to really do this world premiere of this clarinet concerto. As I'm working on it and you know rehearsing it with the orchestra, I'm really excited about how it's coming together. And David, this is what's so amazing about working with living composers is I can turn around to Ken during the rehearsal and say, did you want it that fast? You know, and, and we can't do that with Beethoven and Schumann and Brahms. And so this is one way for not only Ken to have his piece performed, and we're so proud of him, by the way, we're so thrilled to feature a local composer, well, thank you. but also for this piece to live on, you know, because you can write a piece, Ken, and it never be performed. And it's like, we're bringing it to life. And, and this is what's so exciting about presenting new music like this. Ken, I really want to know your inspiration for writing each of the movements, because each of the movements have interesting titles. That's right. They're um, based upon this idea of climate change and overall title of Melt is referring to climate change and how we are effectively melting as a planet. And so the first movement, White Ice, is referring specifically to glacier melt. The second movement, Gray Matter, is referring to brain melt, which I think is what I usually feel when watching the news on climate change. And then the third movement, Black Steel, is referencing uh, wildfire and steel girders melting as a result of uh, the wildfires in California. And so this is where all of these three movements kind of come into play. And of course, there's this kind of added element of the black and white chromatic, kind of like white, gray, and black as uh, influencing each of these three movements as well. It was my intent to really kind of paint a relatively stark picture here. That's not to say the music is dissonant. It's, it's really anything but. It has beautiful soaring moments within the first movement, very lyrical and tonal at times, although it does ultimately kind of come down to a moment of uh, pause as a result of this being very, very serious subject. You know, what's, what's interesting to me too, uh, Ken, you take this very global phenomenon and bring your own very personal perspective to it and make a musical statement that touches humanity. I think that's ultimately what we have to be able to do as artists, because there are large issues out there, which I think matter to many people. Ultimately, I can't necessarily speak for everyone, but I can speak for myself. And so being able to put my own perspective on what is going on there, I, I hope communicates to others and anyone who feels similarly to me about uh, what we are facing. Ken Froelich, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Now, the final piece for this concert is not from a living composer, but it's from a great composer, and it was kind of an immediate success as soon as he uh, put it out there. Sir Edward Elgar's Enigma Variations. Love to hear about this piece. Yes, it is a profound work, and it's interesting that there is a connection because in the Clarinet Concerto by Ken Froelich, he is very good friends with the person he's written this piece for, uh, Jorge Moreno. And so I wanted to kind of bridge that with this English composer, Elgar, in that this piece, the Enigma Variations, you know, it sounds very ominous. You know, it, what is that? If someone were to look at the program and say, what is an Enigma Variation? Well, really, the piece is about Elgar showing all of his friends who are either amateur musicians or music lovers 
giving them a moment in the sun with a movement that pertains to each of his friends. So there are 14 variations and each of them refer to a very close friend who was either a musician or a music lover, but also his wife, also his publisher who had a huge amount of influence over this piece. He was kind of going through a midlife crisis, I think, before he wrote this piece and he felt really uninspired. And what did he do? He, he looked towards his friends and his, his community and his camaraderie for inspiration. And I, I find that so profound in our day and age that, you know, we can look at the Enigma variations in a different way because community and, and friendships and the things that are important to us, we learned so much from during COVID. You know, those things are invaluable to us. And so I think opening this, you know, our concert back into Savoyan is like telling everyone for me and the orchestra and the organization that you are our friends. We want to share this music with you. It's important that you are a part of this community, our Fresno Philharmonic family. Well, it's a really, really engaging program you've put together. It will be a thrill for audience to hear the full symphony with larger works back in the big hall, Sororian Hall. And that all happens tomorrow night, Saturday, March 12th at 7.30 p.m. Ray Hatoda, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. It's great to be back. You'll be able to hear more of this interview and get even deeper into the music during KVPR's next Fresno Philharmonic broadcast on Tuesday, March 22nd. For Valley Edition, I'm David Alves. And that's today's Valley Edition. You can hear all this and more on our website, kvpr.org. You can also download the podcast and find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We've got an app. It's called KVPR. The show is produced by our news team, including Alice Daniel, Carrie Klein, Mavi Bolaños, and Sarith Hawk. Technical support is from Don Weaver. I'm your host, Kathleen Schock. Thanks for listening. Support for Valley Edition comes from the James Irvine Foundation, accepting nominations now for the 2023 James Irvine Foundation Leadership Awards at irvineawards.org. The California Endowment. Health happens when Californians value schools more than prisons. Learn more at calendow.org. The California Healthcare Foundation, working to build a more effective, compassionate, and just healthcare system. On the web at chcf.org health equity.